0: Well, good morning. My name's Aubrey, and with Sam, I'm glad to, to be here with you. So I want you to think for a moment about the passage of Scripture that Rachel read to us, Genesis chapter 46 and 47. And um, let's think about this strange kind of series of economic moves that happen after at the end of chapter 47. There's this brutal famine. It goes on for years. And there's Joseph. He's the vice regent, like the vice president or something of Egypt. And he gets insider knowledge about the famine before the famine happens. And he uses that insider knowledge to do some fancy exchanges on the stock market and to get the farmers to put a higher tax on them to take from them their crops. And he stores it up. Then the famine hits, and they come to him and say, we're starving. And he says, oh, I've got grain. And he sells back to them the uh, very crops that he had taxed from them. And then the famine keeps going, and they get hungry. And they get hungrier, and they're literally starving, like they're facing death. And they go back to Joseph, and they say, help. Help help us out here. And it says in Genesis chapter 47, verse 14, Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain they brought. And he brought the money into Pharaoh's house. I mean, just put yourself in this situation, right? He taxed you, took your goods from you, then you need them. So he sells them back to you. And this goes on for so long until all the money in the land is his, and he takes it into the government. So the people are out of money, and the famine doesn't stop. It keeps going, and it gets worse, and the Egyptian peasants return to Joseph and beg for help, and he sells them more grain, but they don't have any money to buy it with. So listen to what it says, Genesis 47, verse 15. Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? Our money is gone. And Joseph says in verse 16, but you still have animals. Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange Since your money's gone. So they don't have a choice. Like they're dying. Their children are dying. So they hand over their horses and their sheep and their cattle and their donkeys. And then the famine keeps going. Keeps getting worse. Verse 18. When that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. You already own our herds. The herds of our livestock are my Lord's. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land, by us and our land for food? And we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh and give us seed that we may live and not die and that the land may not be desolate. Now, this is hard for us to imagine. I mean, because we were raised being taught American history, right? And being taught Virginia history and being taught to say to the tyrant, don't tread on me. Like you'll take, you'll kill me before you get me or my land. But that's a romantic memory, and maybe we need to think about people who are living in parts of the world that have gone through serious drought. Maybe talk to Jacob Mayani about the Maasai land and drought there, or Bishop Andudu about the bombing of the Nuba Mountains and what starvation will drive people to. Here are a group of people several years into a famine that are so desperate. The only way they can see to survive is to sell themselves for slavery To the king in exchange for food. And that's what happens in verse 20. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was so severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Then jump down to verse 23. Here we have Joseph explaining the new deal. If you've been to high school uh, civics, you know it. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land, and at the harvest you shall give one-fifth of it to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and as food for yourselves. Now, look, this is the next-to-last story of the book of Genesis, the founding book of the Bible. How does it sound to you? I suspect that if you're a die-hard Republican, If you think impeachment's inappropriate, if you have a deep commitment to Fox News and free market economics, this might remind you of Bernie Sanders and AOC and the squad and socialism. And you might read this and think, oh yeah, there's Joseph abolishing private property, turning freeholders into serfs and transforming a decentralized farm economy into a command economy dictatorship. And you might think this is bad economics, and this is worse public policy. This is China in 1949, and Joseph is chairman Mao. And once you create a voracious state apparatus, we all know it has to be fed. And it is, is it no surprise at all to you that slavery becomes the food of the empire? That's one way to look at it. I suspect that those of you who actually like AOC and Bernie Sanders and the squad and your diehard Democrats or some version of that, you might get uncomfortable with this for another set of reasons. It might remind you of colonialism or the indentured servitude of serfs and the feudal system of medieval England and Europe. And after all, it looks like Joseph is exploiting the destitute to empower the proletariat, right? The broke and the penniless and the people, they beg for help. And Joseph leverages that and forces them to sell themselves and mortgage their animals and land and their own freedom to the king in order to stay alive. What I'm getting at is this chapter is really hard for modern Americans to wrap their minds around. What do we do with it? Well, what we need to do with it is we need to remember it is at least 3,500 years old. This was not written after the French Revolution. This was not written in the Enlightenment. This is not a tract on political kind of ways to organize yourself. The the thing we need to remember is that the, the meaning of a scene is always based on its context. I mean, for example, a woman is sleeping in the woods. A man walks up and kisses her. Is that good or is that bad? Well, if she's through hiking the Appalachian Trail and she's all by herself and she has no idea who this dude is that walked into her tent in the middle of the night, right? Then the bad music starts and bad things happen, right? That's a bad story. But if the woman is Sleeping Beauty right? And this is Prince Andrew, then we know that good things happen, that good things, Prince Philip, and good things are next. In other words, in, in, in other words, a scene in a story is always determined by the story it's a part of. If, if Janelle and I are going out to eat with Heather, and um, I, I say something that sounds perfectly nice to Janelle, and she slaps me and throws the food in my place and runs off, Heather might think, what a jerk, that girl Janelle. But if Heather knew our whole marriage, and the fact is I just insulted her mama and her daddy and her grandma for the 900th time, then Heather, Heather would have stood up and slapped me and thrown her food at me too, right? So the meaning of any given moment is always determined by the story it's a part of. So the critical issue with Genesis 47 is for us to recognize it's, it's a scene in a story, and that story starts back right after the table of contents, right at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis Chapter 1, remember context is always king. Genesis begins with two chapters that are just like the opening scenes in a Shakespeare play, right? They um, introduce the main characters and life is as it should be. So we meet the main characters. Who are the main characters in the Bible? God, creation, and humans. We meet them and these three characters in the, I mean, the first line of the Bible is in the beginning. That, that's a clue that it's a story, Right? You don't start out a math book with, in the beginning, you know, Pythagorean theorem or something. In the beginning, we meet God, we meet the major characters, and life is just the way it's supposed to be. Everything is wonderful. It's right. It's flourishing. There's no brokenness. There's no death or disease or poverty or injustice or famine or lentils. It's all good. It's what the Bible describes with the word shalom. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we see that humans are right. They're good. And they stretch out their intellectual and their creative powers to build a world of balance and justice and beauty and joy. And we see that human society and civilization is without greed or malice or envy. There's progress without pollution. There's expansion without extinction. And it's this remarkable vision. That's where the Bible starts. It starts in the good old days. A world in which the success of the strong does not involve depriving the weak. Where government is wise and just and kind and resources are plentiful and war is unnecessary and achievement is unlimited and balance is everywhere. That's where the book of Genesis starts. That's Genesis 1 and 2, the first two chapters. But then we get to Genesis chapter 3. And starting in Genesis chapter 3, and for eight more chapters, things turn dark. First, we get the famous story of Adam and Eve and the snack they weren't supposed to take. And we see the evil of human rebellion. Instead of worshiping God as the source of their life, humans rebel and they give their allegiance to a snake instead of to the source of life. And right after that, as if that was not bad enough, the next thing that happens is Cain kills his brother, Abel. And it just keeps getting worse. And from Genesis chapter 3, if we read this book like a story, from Genesis 3 to Genesis chapter 11, what you have is an avalanche, a growing avalanche of sin. It's like watching the news channels in the summer as a hurricane is developing. As you read through Genesis three through 11, it's just growing. The darkness is growing. The death is growing. The dysfunction is spreading. It's just spreading all out and it's getting worse and worse and worse. And by the time you get to Genesis chapter 11, you're like, it can't get any worse. In fact, the last line of Genesis 11 is, it was barren. There's nowhere else to go. There is no foreseeable route. This thing that started good, at the end of Genesis 11, it's done. There is no hope. There is no path back to God's beautiful, life-giving world. Instead, it's sort of like a cancer is metastasized into every sphere of society, and this dark, nebulous force of evil has just darkened and neutered and sterilized everything. And it's killed every hope. And then you turn the page, like how can there be any more to the story? And you get Genesis chapter 12. If you have your Bible, turn there. Genesis chapter 12 is the tiny hinge that the entire drama of Scripture turns on. And you've got to, to understand Genesis 12. You've got to imagine a movie you're watching at its lowest moment. There is no hope, there is no light, there is no future, it's just, it's done. And then we get these words, this light shining into the darkness. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. Now look, when you read the Lord, all of the sudden, the good God that created everything, that made everything good and beautiful and true, he's entered back in the story. And he says to Abram, I want you to leave where you are. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great. And so at this moment, you're like, oh, really cool. The God who made everything good is at least going to rescue one person. But then you keep reading. So that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now look. If you were God, you might not have decided to fix the world this way. You might have decided to fix it with spaghetti. Or I don't know, like education or something. But when you get to be God and you get your own universe that you create, you can fix it the way you want to fix it. But the God of this story, the way he decided to fix the story was to enter into a relationship with one man and say to that man, you're going to have a lot of children and you're going to become a nation and I'm going to bless you. And when I bless you, it's going to be like you're a positive nuclear reactor. Anybody that gets close to you will get contaminated by your goodness. And I'll put in you all of my life and all of my goodness and beauty and joy and kindness and justice and and when you live this out and other people come near you it's going to be the reverse kind of pollution they're going to be polluted with goodness and beauty and justice and joy and anybody that's good to you I'm going to channel my blessing through you to them. Now that again might not be the way you decide to fix the world but it's the way the primary character in this story decided to fix the world evil will not have the last word Injustice will not prevail. Death will not be final. The Bible is telling a story of hope. So when we get to the end of Genesis and we find Pharaoh and Egypt, which are the big bad superpower, and suddenly Pharaoh and Egypt starts to bless one member of Abraham's family. Well, we know what this is going to lead to because God made a promise. I'm putting all of my goodness in you, and when people tap into that and bless you, I'm going to put my goodness into their life. And so when look what it says in Genesis chapter 41, verse 40. Abraham, Pharaoh sees Joseph. He's a prisoner. And Pharaoh takes Joseph out of prison, sets him free, and makes him head of all of Egypt No one is over Joseph except Pharaoh. Genesis 41 verse 40. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I've set you over all the land of Egypt. Now look, because we're reading this book like a story, and the tiny hinge that the whole story turned on was, God connected up his life-giving goodness to this one family, and now we see this really bad nation, this really bad empire, suddenly do a good thing, and not just any good thing. Blesses Joseph, the carrier of the promise, the son of Abraham. Now, because we're reading a story and we trust the primary character, we know what's going to come out of this, right? Oh, good move, Pharaoh. Like, you've done a lot of bad things, but that was smart. And then in chapter 47, notice what Pharaoh does. In chapter 47, verse 6, Joseph brings his whole family into Egypt and Pharaoh says in 47 verse 6, the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able man among you, put them in charge of my livestock. Like here, what Pharaoh's is doing is he's saying, man, there's like goodness here. And I know when I get close to it, it comes into my life. So here, you take the best land, and if you've got anybody who can handle all my livestock, like, let them be in charge of that too. Because you know what happened when Jacob was in charge of Laban's livestock, right? We know this leads to success. So here again, we find Pharaoh blessing the people of promise. And notice what happens next. Pharaoh says, Joseph, I want to meet your dad. And Joseph's dad comes before the most powerful figure on earth. Genesis chapter 47 and verse 7. Here is Jacob, this old, bent-over, wandering nomad who has no land, standing before the Pharaoh. And it looks like a power disparity, except we've been reading the story. And we know where the real power is. Here he is. He's the head of the family of promise. He's the carrier of God's promise to heal the world. And notice what he does. Genesis 47, verse 7. Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Now, that's the promise of Genesis 12. Whoever blesses you, I will bless them. You are blessed to be a blessing. And then again in verse 10. Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Now, if you would read Genesis 47 through the lens of that story instead of through the lens of American history, if you would try not to read it as somebody who thinks the only two options are free market economics and socialism, if instead you would try to read it in its context and take it on its kind of terms... Then what you see happening is Genesis 47, Egypt and Pharaoh had blessed God's people. And so Jacob, as the head of Israel, blesses Pharaoh. And the rest of the chapter, all that weird stuff about selling the crops or the, the animals and the land and their bodies. Then you would come to that and you would say, this is the blessing working out in Egypt's life. Jacob pronounces the blessing, and then in the rest of the chapter, Egypt experiences the blessing. Egypt, Pharaoh's people were blessed by God. How? Where where is the goodness in the end of chapter 47? They don't die. Because that's what they're facing. Remember, they keep showing up to Joseph and say, we're about to die. We're about to starve to death. Our babies, their stomachs are distended. And by coming to Joseph, they live. He rescues them from death and famine. And the price of their rescue is what? Enslavement. They have to give Joseph ownership of their animals and their land and their bodies. And we think that's a bad deal. Because we were raised as children of the revolutions. No king, no priest, we have been raised really believing that the best freedom comes from no master. But the Bible is trying to confront us with the truth that it's hard for Americans to hear, and it is this. What we need most is not freedom, but a new master. And it's hard for us to believe that. This is very hard for Americans to see and understand and believe because we have been taught and educated and socialized and brainwashed into a deceit that total freedom comes from no master. Look at it this way. In a commencement address at Kenyon College in Ohio, the late great David Foster Wallace, he wrote, he said this, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wicked Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some infrangible set of ethical principles, the reason those things are are good to worship is that pretty much everything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things... If they are what you tap your real meaning in life, then they, you will never have enough. You will never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly and when time and age starts showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power. You will feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid. You will always feel a fraud on the verge of being found out. That's what Genesis 47 is showing us. Remember the context. The context is that they were dying, and in exchange for selling themselves as slaves, they got to live. And Joseph, who is Joseph? Their new master. Well... What have we learned about Joseph? We've learned, here is a guy who forgives his brothers who plotted his murder. By the time you get to this moment, Joseph is this amazing guy. Filled with mercy and kindness. And not only is he a merciful and kind master, he's wise. That's a a thing the story says over and over. He was so wise that Egypt's, that Pharaoh said, he's going to be in charge of the whole country because we're about to go through seven years of plenty, boom, and then seven years of, like, bust, and he's the guy that can navigate our nation through that. Over and over, it describes him as wise and discerning. So think about their new master. Their new master is filled with compassion and kindness and wisdom and discernment. And I'm saying to you that this is a picture of the choice we all face. That there is one wiser than Joseph, and more beautiful, and more kind, who also forgave his murderers as he hung on a cross. And you have the same choice the Egyptians had a life without bread. Or come to the one who offers bread for the life of the world. And you have to choose. And you know what? The price of the life is the same as it was for them. You have to give him everything. If you want the life that God offers, you have to give him everything. You have to give him your stuff, and he's in control of it. And you, and, and you have to give him your body and let him be in control of that and all of your possessions. But here's the thing. If you do give that to him, he will give you the bread of life for the life of the world. And some of you, like Egypt, you've done this. And some of you, like Egypt, it was bad circumstances that got you there. You woke up one day in a gutter, and the only way out was to reach out in faith to Jesus, and he saved you. And like Egypt, you don't resent him for it. Notice what it says in Genesis 47, verse 25. And they said, you have saved our lives. May it please, my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. There are people that look at Christians and think, what kind of person would let a God be in control of their life? People who are incredibly thankful because they know it would save their life. And he offers that to all of us. And the only way to draw down on the life of God is to turn in faith to the one who is the son of Joseph and greater than Joseph and give him everything. Apart from serving God, there is no freedom, there is no masterless freedom. Our greatest need is not for total masterless freedom. It's for a new master who is good and true and kind and beautiful. And that's the story the Bible tells on page after page after page. And how can you get to the cross and you see the one who is perfect, who loves you so much that he would really die for you and not return your thanks by saying, you can have everything. I give you everything. You have the bread of life. You exist for the life of the world. We are starving and facing death. And we need this new master. One other thing. It's interesting that in our psalm this morning, Psalm 67, we we said these very hard-to-believe words. We said... May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the people praise you, O God. Let all the people praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. It can be hard to believe that the nations will convert. It's so much easier to believe that we'll just escape this place. But the Bible starts in Genesis 12. It says, through you, I'm going to bless the nations. In Psalm 67, through you, I'm going to bless the nations. And then in our gospel reading this morning, Luke chapter 2, the song of Simeon. When he looks at Jesus, he says, through this child, the Lord's Messiah, all the nations will come into the kingdom. In this tiny moment, at the end of Genesis, Egypt converted That's what we're seeing. We see Pharaoh saying to Joseph, you are wise and discerning and beautiful. We see Pharaoh kneeling before Jacob to be blessed by the people of God. For just a moment, we see the conversion of Egypt. And later on in the Bible, for just a moment, we see the conversion of Nineveh. And these stories are here in the Bible to help us to know the nations will come to God in his kingdom. That's the promise And we get glimpses where it does happen along the way. And just because for a moment, you feel like Joseph in prison, thinking there is no good happening in this world, and there is no way that the big, powerful, life-giving promises of God could ever come true. They will. They have. And one day when the Lord Jesus returns, all of the nations will come to him. We have that hope. He is that powerful. He is the author of the story. It can be hard to believe. But here's a moment where we got a glimpse of it. Let's pray.